This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Alahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 24th. Today, how the system failed Brianna Taylor. Why students are calling for an end to Greek life. And a brief history of court packing. In Frankfort, Kentucky, the young attorney general, Daniel Cameron, Republican, African-American man seen as a rising star in the Republican Party, announces that just one of the three officers directly involved in Breonna Taylor's shooting will face charges and not for actually shooting at Taylor. There's no doubt that this is a gut-wrenching, emotional case, and the pain that many people are feeling is understandable. The officer who had already been fired, who shot through the window of her apartment and the bullets reached another apartment. And for that, he was charged with wanton endangerment. Kentucky law states that a person is guilty of wanton endangerment in the first degree when under circumstances manifesting in indifference to the value of human life, he wantonly engages in conduct which creates a substantial danger of death or serious physical injury to another person. The other two officers, uh, after the grand jury decision, were not charged. It set off protests here in Louisville and in other places across the United States. There were marches beginning around 1.30, Uh, when the announcement was made, and police were very quick to draw the line and break up large groups throughout the evening, throughout the afternoon. And at some point uh, near the downtown area late last night. Two police officers were shot uh, in the chaos. Uh, They're both expected to live. Uh, My name is Robert Klimko. When George Floyd was killed, I went to Minneapolis for the National News Desk and have covered police shootings uh, for some time since. Describe what actually happened to Breonna Taylor on the night that she died. So police were investigating Breonna Taylor's ex-boyfriend, who they alleged was a drug trafficker, And they obtained the warrant on the premise that the address at which she was living was being used um, to accept drugs on behalf of the ex-boyfriend. Brianna, as we later learned, had moved on from this man in her life and was dating someone else. And when police came, they had obtained a no-knock search warrant, but they have said on the record that They did knock and they did announce themselves. They have a single witness saying that they did announce themselves and multiple other witnesses saying that they heard no such announcement. In any case, they 
came through the door. Brianna's current boyfriend, believing that the, someone was intruding into the home, fired shots at the police officers, striking one in the leg. And the officers respond with more than 20 return shots, at least six of which hit and kill Brianna Taylor, either in the doorway of her bedroom or in her bed. There's some disagreement there. There's call logs suggesting she lived for a few moments without receiving medical help. And then, as in a lot of cases involving police violence, the cover-up ends up being not worse than the crime, but but very telling. What was the cover-up? The lawyer for the man that they were originally trying to arrest said that the police offered him a plea deal, which would give him a reduced sentence if he would implicate uh, Breonna Taylor uh, in a criminal conspiracy, and, and he declined to do so. Well, you know, we saw last week that the city of Louisville reached a settlement with Brianna Taylor's family. And for a lot of people, that seemed like an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Have they said that how police responded to this situation was wrong and that they are the reason why Brianna died needlessly? You know, I think the settlement is, is somewhat of an acknowledgement of that. But I think what the police here and, the, and city officials have acknowledged is that ultimately this was bad police work. And though a grand jury decided and and state officials have apparently decided it doesn't rise to the level of a crime outside of the wanton endangerment charge for the fired officer, they do acknowledge that there were steps, I think, that they could have taken that would have prevented loss of life here. What could those steps have been? Detectives, former detectives who have been interviewed on this topic have said, look, you, you know, you go into these situations with more than just an understanding that drugs are going in and out of a location. You try to have a CI, a a criminal informant on the inside, who can give you a lay of the land. You try to understand whether or not the person who's going to be behind that door on the other side of that door is is armed and likely to return gunfire to an intrusion. So they had very little understanding of what was going on on the other side of that door. And I think the question that the African-American community here in Louisville and across the country asks is, why do police feel comfortable going into these situations with so little information when we're talking about black suspects and predominantly black communities when they feel less emboldened in dealing with different communities? So I want to ask a little bit more about this one charge of wanton endangerment, because one of the bullets from one of the police officers entered into another unit of the apartment building. What does that actually mean? And why is it that that charge or no other charge applies to Brianna Taylor and her apartment? So I think we're running up against this conflict between what's expected of, of good police work and what's legal, right? So police are expected to know more about locations before they serve warrants, but they don't have to. Police are uh, expected to return fire when fired upon. But there's very little limit as to how recklessly or how much they should return fire. And in this case, the officer crossed the line, not because he was firing shots at a target, but because those shots entered into another apartment and endangered people who had nothing to do with the warrant being served. And so we have this expectation of what a good police officer does, but it doesn't always line up with you know, what's legal. Hmm. It also seems like we're reaching this point in, you know, this national conversation about racial injustice, where it does seem like 
attorneys general across the country are trying to be more aggressive in pursuing convictions or at least pursuing charges against police officers and that they're recognizing how much demand there is to see some kind of justice for Black people who are killed by police officers, but that it still seems like these charges so rarely stick or it's so rarely possible to even get charges in the first place. And so why is that? Like, why do we keep coming up against a situation where juries refuse to acknowledge wrongdoing from police officers? You know, I I don't think the answer to that is simple. You know, I think that the idea that police officers should be left to their own devices a lot of the time because they they have such dangerous jobs in this country is baked into a lot of our communities, especially conservative, you know, Republican areas and, and red states. There's not a blanket movement, I think, to try to bring more charges against police officers. But I do think that when cases are high profile like this and there there is video or or there is compelling testimony or there's compelling evidence suggesting police were in the wrong attorneys uh, district attorneys state attorneys are compelled by DOJ oversight to try to bring as much you know scrutiny to the process as as is allowed and it seems like regardless what the public sentiment is or how that sentiment is, is starting to change, especially among white people, that there is just still a lot of legal latitude baked into the law when it comes to policing. And as you said, that there is a difference between our expectations of what good policing should look like versus what the law actually says is and is not allowed for a police officer. And we have a lot of laws that are in direct conflict with one another. I mean, no-knock warrants are bound to run afoul of stand-your-ground laws. Breonna Taylor's boyfriend in our country is justified in, in shooting somebody who he thinks is an intruder. Police are justified with a no-knock warrant whether they choose to knock or not. <laughs> so when you have those two laws, they're incongruent. And so you're going to have situations like this. And in this case, you know, you have uh, a victim that a lot of people can identify with and rally behind because she really had nothing to do with this criminal enterprise that was being investigated. I think the legacy of this is, is not necessarily that you'll see the officers ever held accountable, but you're going to see the demise of no-knock warrants in, in a lot of places um, and you're already seeing cities and states across the across the country adopt legislation banning no-knock warrants, which were a consequence of the war on drugs and hmm. the idea that you know a drug offender might flush evidence down the toilet when it, when a police officer executing a warrant knocks on the door. I didn't know that that's where that came from. The idea of a no-knock warrant was just because you're afraid that if you give people a couple seconds that they'll get rid of evidence. That was part of the justification for a lot of these no-knock laws that were introduced years ago. And as we begin to reduce minimum sentencing for drug offenses, it makes sense that we would then reduce some of the measures in terms of combating drug possession and drug dealing that, you know, have become so dangerous for bystanders. Robert Klemko is a reporter for The Post. 
The Abolish Greek Life movement grew organically on social media among college students in the wake of George Floyd's killing. I think the vast, vast majority of my former brothers were pretty much on the exact same page as I was at that point about the steps going forward and our involvement in Greek life. Graham Payne Reichart is a 20-year-old student at American University. He was the vice president of his chapter of Delta Tau Delta. There was a huge wave of, you know, outcry against Greek life. Greek life has a lot of power on a lot of college campuses, and it's something that has drawn eyes from current students, alumni, parents, people who are not in sororities, not in fraternities, people who are for a number of years. The way that this movement has inspired people who maybe hadn't been incredibly moved in the past to really take a stand that interested me. I'm Emily Davies. I am a reporter for The Post. I am on the local desk and I started at The Post recently. This most recent conversation around fraternities and how, in some ways, they play a role in racism and racial injustice on campus, it feels like that is just the latest iteration of concerns around fraternities and sororities. Because, of course, we've had these conversations about the problems with these institutions when it comes to things like sexual assault, when it comes to things like hazing. It seems like every couple of years, there's a new iteration of like, this is why these Greek organizations are a problem. What is most striking about this movement is that it's the students who are in Greek life or who were in Greek life who are leading it who are not calling for reforms. They're calling for an end to this system that they all joined willingly and in many ways enjoyed. And to me, that is notable and that is newsworthy, if you will, and I think shows something deeper that's happening on college campuses right now than maybe what has happened in the past. So what does that actually look like when it plays out in real life? It's hard for me to imagine students who are a part of these organizations just sitting down and being like, I think that this club that we're in should no longer exist. This house that we live in should no longer exist. Like, how do they disband something like that from the inside? So first of all, real life is so distorted right now that these conversations aren't happening in sorority houses or in fraternity houses. They're happening over Zoom. And I think in some ways that gave power to the movement because it was easier for students in their words to imagine life without Greek life when they were already not at school. And so the pandemic added an element to this whole conversation that in some ways made it easier for students to recognize and say and express their deep concerns with the organizations they were a part of. So this all really started on social media when, in the wake of George Floyd's killing, these anonymous Instagram accounts popped up at a handful and growing number of college campuses across the country. They were Black at American University or abusers at American University. When this page came out and all these allegations about Greek life in general and how toxic it was started coming to light, it really 
you know, that movement kind of just exploded onto the scene. And very quickly, I uh, realized that I ha it had my full support and that I couldn't, you know, remain complicit in the system anymore. These Instagram accounts provided a platform for students to share anonymous stories of racism or sexual assault that they had experienced while on campus, and they grew very quickly. They had dozens of posts, many of them now have hundreds of posts of students submitting anonymous stories, sharing how they were discriminated against and how that made them feel. And a lot of these stories ended up centering Greek life. What were some of the examples of the things that people were posting about, of, of things that had happened to them either at fraternities or sororities or like within fraternities and sororities? There were a lot of disturbing stories shared by women of color. One particularly notable story that was of a Black woman who said she had slept with a fraternity brother, walked downstairs at this fraternity house, and every brother had congratulated the man for losing his Black virginity. And that had really mm. impacted her and changed the way that she experienced college. Wow. Are there any other anecdotes about like, you know, just what are the ways where they were like, this is kind of a messed up thing and like the racial dynamics of this feel really uncomfortable? So fraternity parties often have lists associated with them. And these lists determine who's cool and who's not on many college campuses. And they're incredibly white on average. And the fraternity brothers get to make these lists. They often make these lists based on who they say they find attractive. And they use white standards of beauty. And a lot of women of color and people of color find that to be incredibly racist and off-putting, as do white students. And they still stand. And it's easy for fraternity brothers to explain away by pointing to, you know, these girls are my friends. I know them from class. What makes you say that this is racist? It's just who I know. So that is one clear example that can dictate a lot and deeply upset people. The way that sorority recruitment functions normally is spread across two or three days on campus at these smaller universities. At bigger universities, it can be weeks and it can happen before school even starts. But on these smaller campuses, these sorority sisters, these current sorority sisters, essentially rank the girls they talk to based on first impression. And there is this prevailing sense among sorority sisters that the way that that first impression is ranked or determined is again based on race in that if you look similar to the girl that you're talking to, you'll like her more. If you went to a similar college you, or high school, you'll like her more. If you have a similar way of speaking, you'll like her more. And all of that is racialized at the end of the day. But for every negative story you have like that, I'm sure that there are positive stories of people of color who have participated in these groups and found it to be really enriching to their lives, that they found friends, that they found support and confidence and a space on campus where they could be themselves. And so uh, with that in mind, like what was the 
pushback that you heard from some people, and I would be curious, especially about non-white people, who say that, you know, actually being a part of a fraternity or sorority can sometimes be a force for good. I think it's a really important point because I heard it so frequently from current students, both students who are involved in the movement to abolish Greek life and students who have opted out, that their fraternities and their sororities have been problematic in many ways, but in some ways have been the most inclusive and comforting spaces that they have found away from their childhood homes. And that was not just from white students. So how effective has this movement been? And have there been actual chapters of fraternities or sororities that have closed down? That's a really complicated question and a question that I think reveals a lot about the competing forces at play in this movement. At least a dozen, if not more, chapters, sorority or fraternity chapters across the country have voted to disband. So that means that all of their members have said, we don't believe this chapter should exist anymore. I think the fact that 100% of my former fraternity, this chapter disaffiliated, shows that everyone was, you know, in support of this movement. And then we all shifted to throw our support behind the Abolish Greek Life movement. What is happening almost across the board is that their national Greek letter organizations, their national chapters, have denied their request to disband. And they have the power to do that. And what they can do instead of allowing this chapter to disintegrate and disappear on that campus is send an employee from their headquarters to campus the following year to recruit a new crop of students to start the whole chapter all over again. Hmm. And it shows the power of institutions and how hard it is to really dismantle a system. And it feels like that's so reflective of any kind of change that happens that is student-led, you know, on campuses, that there's just like no institutional memory or, or just the way that school works. Kids are cycling in and out. And even if students try to change something, all it takes is waiting two or three years and then you can start completely from scratch. Right. I think that's true. And I also think it speaks to concerns that a lot of students had at the beginning of this movement when they were trying to figure out whether to drop or disband or whether to stay in their sororities or fraternities because a lot of their biggest fears is that they would drop, their friends would drop, the people who were working to make Greek life more inclusive would leave, and what would be left is something even more problematic. And this question of what comes after a movement is dominating discourse on campus around Greek life. And I think in many ways, it's indicative of a bigger conversation that's going on. What happens after a summer of protests? What happens after the country is outraged? And is it possible to really make change that lasts based on an energetic moment? And I think that's a complicated question, and I'm not sure the story answers that, but I hope it shows the complexity behind it. Emily Davies is a reporter for The Post. This 
This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. And now, one more thing. Since Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and it became clear that President Trump and Senate Republicans would move to confirm a nominee for her seat, Democrats have been talking about a controversial form of retaliation, court packing. Some Democrats are urging to pack the court, add more members to the Supreme Court if they win a Senate majority. Well, it will be a decision that is, uh, comes to the Senate. We first have to win the majority before that can happen. But once we win the majority, God willing, everything is on the table. So we started wondering, why are there nine Supreme Court justices in the first place? And it turns out that some of our colleagues at The Post were finding out the answer to that same question. So the Constitution does not dictate how many justices there should be on the Supreme Court. This is something that Congress has power over. Congress set this number at six, that there was one chief justice and five associate justices. Lisa Holmes is an associate professor of political science at the University of Vermont. This week, she talked with Allison Michaels, the host of our politics podcast, Can He Do That? Earlier in our history, Congress demonstrated a willingness to use that power for political ends. So during the the first handful of decades of our existence as a country, when Congress altered the number of justices on the Supreme Court, they always did so with at least some eye towards politics at the time, adding seats when they wanted to and, and reducing the number of seats when Congress wanted to. But it has been set at nine justices since 1869. Since this, you know, solidification of the Supreme Court being at nine justices, FDR's situation is, is the most apparent effort to try to change that in, in, in subsequent years. So what his frustration was with the Supreme Court was the Supreme Court's handling of key provisions in his New Deal plan. So what happened was FDR was reelected in 1936 in a landslide, and his Democratic Party also gained more seats in Congress as well. So, So they entered 1937 with a mandate. But the problem was this recalcitrant, more conservative Supreme Court getting in the way of some of FDR's key New Deal plans. So very soon after his reelection in February of 1937, FDR proposed his plan to to potentially alter the number of justices on the Supreme Court. How he pitched this in one of his fireside chats was to say that the Supreme Court needed some newer, younger blood and people on the court who were more in tune with the political and economic crisis of the time. So what he proposed was to increase the number of justices from nine all the way to 15. And even though FDR came into his second term on this wave of support, this was a proposal that was not as popular as he might have expected it to be, not just among the opposite party, the Republican Party, but even among his own party in terms of this solidification of the idea that manipulating the Supreme Court in that way is a bridge too far, even in a time of crisis like we were in at that time. 
You know, the, the biggest concern is that if the public starts to lose faith in the, in the legitimacy of the judiciary, then, then perhaps we're just not so inclined to even listen to them anymore. The way, the way that I tend to put it when I teach this material to students is that we all listen to the judiciary because we choose to listen to the judiciary. They can't make us listen to them. And so if we start thinking of the judicial branch as a bunch of partisan hacks, no different than perhaps any other branch, branch of government, why would we be so interested in listening to them anymore? And and that also dovetails to the, the, the relevant concern about our faith in the rule of law and the decisions that the judiciary hands down. So within the political science field, there is great concern uh, that comes along with what could happen if the court's legitimacy starts being undermined in a substantial way. Lisa Holmes is a political science professor at the University of Vermont. To hear more from this conversation, check out this week's episode of Can He Do That?, which comes out on Thursday evening. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, the nightmare unfolding just outside the happiest place on Earth. I feel like each year is getting worse. First we were in like normal hotels, then the hotels started getting worse. And now we're at the Star, and that place is like hell on Earth. You'll hear that story on Friday. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.